though when boy meets girl, when two worlds collide and they lived what? Happily ever after. My buddy went to Disney on Ice last night and I teased him because one of his, well, I don't know if it's his favorite movie, but he was, let's just say he was caught watching Tangled all by himself and we questioned we questioned his manhood in that moment. Like, okay, look, I got, I got, I got it. You got daughters. You should watch Tangled with your daughters. Why are you watching it alone? Anyway, um, but, but in Tangled and in, uh, in, in the Cinderella and in Little Mermaid, in all these stories, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a pretty girl, there's a handsome guy. They meet under unusual circumstances. There's usually a dragon or an evil stepmother or there's somebody crazy in the story. There's talking animals always. And they meet and then they fall in love in these magical circumstances. And then it seems like the movie just ends, right? It just stops. And then they just throw the tag on there and it says what? They lived happily ever after and then when we were kids we thought how sweet and romantic and girls you make believe and you dressed up little dolls and had make-believe weddings and boys you destroyed things with death stars and uh and 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 but you, and you grew up with the notion of well, that's just how it goes right if you just meet the right person that you will have this magical chemistry and things will just work because that's the way god intended it to be like things just they, they're, they're, they are just magical this is that unknown thing. Like, like I said, we call it chemistry, magic, connection. We were soulmates. We were made for each other. You know what I mean? We have these ideas. And then our ideas crash into reality about, uh, about nine months after the wedding. And, and we run into like, well, wait a minute. Little Mermaid was not like her. Cinderella did not have bad days like her. Prince Charming did not behave that way. You know, when we, and we run into these brutal realities and we learn that happily ever after is not magical. And so this series has been so fun. And if you maybe you just came for the first time or you haven't been here several weeks, please, you can go watch online for free. You can go pick up some of the CDs in the back. But because this, this is a journey. This is something that builds one upon another. And we started with the idea that who you date and therefore marry has just the biggest ramifications on your future, doesn't it? Because that, is, that in essence, dictates how your marriage starts. It doesn't necessarily uh, put a nail in the coffin, good or bad, either way, but it, it, it's huge in how you start, and that there's, there's certain people in this life that are dateable, right? And parents, if you have kids that are dating, you know who's dateable, right? Let me say that again. If you have teenage or, or adult children, you know who's dateable, right? But when you were their age, you didn't know who was dateable, did you? Because we're, we're blinded at, at a young age and we, we don't know who's dateable. And so you need to figure out who's dateable. And, and in the meantime, while you're trying to find who's dateable, you need to become dateable. Because if you marry Mr. Uh, right now instead of marrying Mr. Right, then you, you, you're going to have some obstacles to overcome in, 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 in the future of your marriage. And so not only that, but then we move forward and realize that the foundation of all marriage is actually not, not this elusive idea of chemistry and attraction. Because how many know in, in our society, attraction is how you start together, right? He looked that good. She looked that good. He, he drove that car. You know, whatever, whatever it was. And we get together based on attraction. But how many know like, like physical attraction does not give you a recipe for success in marriage? Right? That actually friendship is the foundation. Of all things marriage. But you don't get me wrong. I mean, in last week we talked about this. Once you step off and you jump off that launching pad called friendship, that actually enhances this idea called romance. And you want romance. 
Because if you have, if you have friendship and, and, and in marriage, but you don't have romance, it's like having a roommate. And you don't want to be married to a roommate. You could have had that when you were in college or, or, or when you were in your 20s. You had a roommate, and he smelled bad. You know, or whatever. And girls, you probably had good roommates. But, but you don't want to be married to your roommate. So there's got to be that spark of romance. So we talked about that. Please go get the series. But today, we will wrap it up on really what it takes to make love last forever. How do you actually end up happily ever after? And the friendship is huge and the romance is huge. But at some point, you still need to land on the ever, ever after And so if you would bow your heads with me and let's just pray one more time as we begin today and ask God to help us. Lord, we we pray that you would speak to us today. For some of us, we need to be challenged, convicted. For some of us, God, we just need to solidify something today. God, make a stand today. Adopt a biblical virtue and principle today, God. Speak to us, Lord, in your own way. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. And we all said... Amen. So Jesus is, is definitely challenged with the idea of, of what we talk about ever after. So Jesus, in his day and in his culture and his time period, there was a debate going on. In the generation before Jesus, in the, the, the time that he lived, there were two prominent Jewish teachers, they, the rabbis. One was named Halil and the other one was named Shammai. And they had a debate. And, and basically, these two guys had huge schools of ministry and huge uh, numbers of disciples. And, and they, they were able to teach their own kind of doctrine, meaning like they could take the Bible and say, hey, this is what it means. You can trust me on that. And so they had the authority to teach the Bible the way that they wanted to teach the Bible. And so these guys, you know, they agreed on some things, but they disagreed on on others. And one of the areas they disagreed on was the area of commitment inside of marriage, like fidelity inside of marriage, when it was okay to get a divorce. And so what they did was they took uh, a passage from the Old Testament. And and so one guy said, actually, what it means is, is that it's, it's commitment no matter what, Unless there's sexual unfaithfulness, that would give you the only out to, to break off the, this idea. Uh, and it was kind of a that was that was seen as the stricter version. And then the other version, which all the guys were totally bought into at this point in time in history, because women were not seen as equal to men. And so the other guy taught a much more liberal view of marriage. And he was much more like, no, 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 it's not sexual unfaithfulness. It's unfaithfulness in anything. Like if she burns the toast, she's been unfaithful with dinner. She can go. If she's been unfaithful with keeping the house clean, she's done. She can go. And so, so like all the men were like, we like this guy. And, um, and so this is the debate. And so let's, let's read together in light of that context. The, the Pharisees came up to Jesus. This is Matthew 19, if you want to follow along in your own Bible. Verse 3, or you can follow along on the screen. says, the Pharisees came up to him, meaning Jesus. And they asked him the question, hey, what's your take? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason? Remember the, the liberal guy? He said, hey, anything goes. She burns a toast, kick her out. And so and that was literally his illustration, too. So so Jesus answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, who created all people from the beginning? God did. That's right. Um, y'all were real nervous there. Y'all get so nervous when I ask these out loud questions. You're like, I don't know what to say. Is it Jesus? No, you know, God's good. Um, So have you not read that God who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, a man shall leave his father and his mother shall hold fast or cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but they're one. And what therefore God has joined together 
don't let man separate. So now this is what you need to watch what Jesus did. Jesus got into a debate with two, with some Pharisees that were talking about what two previous rabbis said. And these two previous rabbis pointed to a scripture in the Old Testament that was written by Moses. Okay, this was the law that Moses gave. So after, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, after Jacob, Joseph goes and, and saves Egypt and the world, and after the Israelites are enslaved and the Israelites get free because God throws down the hammer of ten plagues and throws frogs on everybody and freaks everybody out, they come into the promised land. And this, is, this is that law. Does that make sense? And in that law, what Moses did was, is Moses said, all right, here's the deal. Here's what you've got to do. And it was groundbreaking. It was revolutionary what he did he gave incredible dignity to women because basically before the law of moses was written you could do basically anything to a woman you got to remember this was a very archaic bar- uh, barbaric society and culture we were talking thousands of years ago and women had I mean, women could be seen as property and so so the bible comes along and moses says no 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 women have dignity and if you want to divorce your wife you must write what's called a ketubah it was a contract and it was basically an agreement saying that if i divorce divorce you, I will make sure that you are cared for even if I divorce you. It will give you money and it would take care of you. It would make sure because again, what would happen to a woman in an archaic and barbaric society if she had no husband? Yeah, I mean, she could be taken as a slave. She'd be taken as property. She could be raped, murdered, killed, all kinds of awful things. It was terrible. And so God, through Moses, gives women incredible dignity here. But when Jesus is asked about it, he does not point back to the law of Moses, which is what they were debating. What does he go back to? He goes way back to the beginning. He goes all the way back to Genesis, like chapter 2, Genesis. He goes, actually, this has nothing to do with the law. You want to go back and see what was God's original intent. That's what he points to. And so let's keep reading. So the Bible says they, they responded. So they picked up on what Jesus was putting down. He went back to Genesis, and he goes, whoa, 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 these are the Pharisees. They're very law-oriented, meaning like, what did the Torah say? What did Moses say? And so they said, well, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of the divorce, of divorce and then to send her away? That was the ketubah, the certificate of divorce. And he goes, well, actually, it was because of the hardness of your heart, like because of your sin. Like, not God's intent, because you got issues. Because we're, and hardness of a heart was just an idiom for, like, stubbornness and pride Something that's not open to God. It's hard. And he goes, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed, everybody say allowed. Meaning like this wasn't prescribed. It was just permitted. It was allowed for you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Are you tracking with me so far? So Jesus is put on, on the spot by these Pharisees. It's like, hey, we want your take on this whole thing. We want you to decide, was it Shammai? Was it Halil? Who was right? Can you divorce her for burning the toast? Or is it what? And, and Jesus goes on and says, look, no, no, no. Don't even think about it in those terms. Remember what God's original intent was. That way back in the beginning, it was a man and it was a woman. And it was a unique moment where literally two became one. And so write this down if you're taking notes. Marriage is a spiritual event founded upon a mutual exchange of holy pledges. This is what it originally was. It was what, that, that, the idea that two people would become one. That's that's spiritual because I, I married my wife. Uh, it'll be 14 years next month. And, and 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 she's separate than me. Right. We're not attached at the hip. We're not. We're not joined at the hip like that together. We're not. So in what way are we one? 
is a spiritual event that takes place when these holy pledges happen. And so you need to remember this, that marriage is spiritual. Everybody say, everybody say marriage is spiritual. Now, I didn't say that. It's just the way the book wrote it, right? That marriage is a spiritual union. It, it's, as a matter of fact, God calls it a covenant. Now, I don't want to get into the details of, of, of why and how they would make a covenant because it's a, it's a bloody mess. And so, but, but the idea of covenant is what they founded marriage on. And covenant's different, right? Like you and I live in a day of contracts, right? We live in a day of lawyers and, and, and sometimes prenuptial agreements. And you got all these different ways of looking at stuff. And how many of you have ever had to sign a contract before? If you've bought anything, done anything, you, you've had to sign some type of contract. Well, guess what? When you actually fill out your, and file your paperwork with the IRS and with the state for when you get married, in essence, you've got to put down some things on paper, and you are signing a type of a contract. And a contract society, unfortunately, thinks very, very differently than a covenant society does. Does that make sense? So, so again, marriage is covenant not contract. Now, here's I'm going to point out some things that I want you to see that changes the way that I want you to look at marriage when we talk about the fact that marriage is covenant, not contract. Number one is this. When you think covenant, they thought very, very differently. The first thing is this. Covenant. La, 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 there you go. Covenant. Now, how many know when you get into a contract, the, 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 the typical idea is this. I'm going to make sure that you don't take advantage of me. I'm going to make sure that you don't hurt me. I'm going to make sure that you don't steal from me, rob me, that you keep things from me. And so the idea of contract is to protect me from you, right? We don't want somebody to hose us and take advantage of us, so we're going to sign a contract. That way, if you break the agreement, I can take this to a lawyer who takes it to a court, who gets it to a judge, and then I can sue you for breaking the what? The contract. And so the contract is to make sure that you do your part and then therefore it protects me. Covenant's different. That you would enter into a covenant for the sake of the other person. It would be the essence of saying, hey, look, I want to make sure that because of my sinful nature that I don't hose you. I'm going to make sure that because I might have a hardened heart one day that I want you to know that I'm going to always protect you, that your interest will be above my interest. So I'm actually going to protect you from me. How many of you have ever done that when you bought a car, bought a house, entered into a financial obligation? You're like, hey, just in case I, I go south, you know, just in case I lose my mind and fall into trouble, just in case I get real greedy, I'm going to sign this just because I want you to be protected. How many of you ever done that? No, because we don't trust people. Marriage is spiritual. Marriage is different, remember? And so here, here's another thought. Marriage, our, our, our contract says this. Contract says, I take care of... Um, I take you for me, right? In a marriage, don't you say these vows like, dearly beloved, I promise to have a told the love and shares to have. But, but look, I take you for me. Who's in charge in this one? You are. You're being selfish. I'm taking you for me. Covenant says I give myself to you. Let's keep going here. Contract says you better. This is what you're going to do. We signed this to make sure you were clear on what you were bringing to the table. This is what you're going to do. Covenant says, how can I serve you? It's totally different. Contract says, hey, what do I get out of this? I want to make sure that I'm getting mine. This marriage agreement, you know, we're going to build in some things. 
You know, because I know I heard stories, you know, that the, the, the romance dies. So we're going to build into the contract certain times per week. And yeah, it's, we're, we're, I'm going to get mine. And so what do I get out of this agreement? How much money are you bringing in? How much debt you got? No, we're done. So anyway, covenant says, what can I give? Let's go. What, another one here. I, like, contract is this. Hey, we'll meet in the middle. I'll meet you halfway. Covenant says, I'll give you 100%. Last one. Contract says I have to. Why? Well, because I signed something and you'll sue me if I don't. Covenant says I want to. I entered into agreement because I wanted to be a partner with you in life. And just so you know, I'm a little flawed and I want to be a part of a covenant to protect you from me. I want to be a part of a covenant so that I can lift your needs above my own needs and lift you up above myself. Now... Now you got to change your paradigm about marriage, don't you? Because our society is totally different than marriage, right? Like, like this, is, this is probably a good example of what many people think about when they think about marriage. Or they, don't, they either are, are not thinking about it consciously, it's somewhere deep in their subconscious, or it's at least what they're thinking but would never say. You want to know what they... Let's, this is a glimpse of what might be in the back of people's minds if they were giving truly honest selfish, self-seeking vows that were all about them. Here's what it would look like. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to celebrate an incredible occasion. Two people who were once filing separately will now be filing together. Who gives this bride in marriage? Oh, my, my attorney and I. Wonderful. Well, The lovely couple has prepared their own vows. And I do want you to know that I want you to think about these vows as being taken incredibly serious until found too inconvenient. Delano, would you begin? Okay. I'm nervous. Amanda, you are my one true desire and the only girl I could get to go out with me. Delano, you are my heart's backup plan since my last relationship failed. I promised to have and to hold so we could try this out for a while and see if it works. And I promise to love and cherish until we get tired of each other. For better and for worse, but don't make it that bad. And for richer and richer, so my shopping habit doesn't send us further into debt. In health and in beauty, so keep it looking good. And Delano, I promise to unload all my problems and complaints to you as soon as you walk into our home. Amanda, I promise to be faithful to you as long as you are around. And I promise to log away every mistake you make and use it in a later argument. I promise to give this relationship a hundred and ten percent, except during football season and baseball season. And when I'm out with the guys. And I promise that when hard times come, I'll go stay with my mom and throw you under the bus. For For as long as we both still like each other. Well, uh, excuse me, that that was moving and special. Uh, Wow, the the future looks bright for you two uh, lovebirds. I'm so excited for you. Uh, So, with that being said, in the eyes of man and the IRS... I now officially wed you as husband and wife. Congratulations. 
So that's ha- that's what happily for a while looks like, just so you know. If you just want to be happy for a little while, but don't ever say those things, right? You keep those things buried deep in your soul. Don't you dare say those things. But how many of you know, like, that's, we laugh, but we know people. Y'all aren't like that. We know other people, though, that have had some of those thoughts in the back of their mind that you enter into marriage thinking, well, I'm expecting this out of you, and it better be like this, and it needs to be like this, and well, here's what I'm going to do. This is what it would look like if we entered into a selfish contract, right? And this is many times why we we fall into uh, uh, the, the cultural tendencies that we do right now, is because we see marriage differently than the way that God designed it. Even in the days of Jesus, they had already moved towards like, hey, I want to make sure that I'm taking care of mine, that I can get out of this thing if I need to. You know, if she's crazy, I'll get out or if he's nuts and he's he smells and his hygiene isn't nearly what he thought I thought it was while we were dating. And so when, when these things become uh, a, a way more revealed in the relation, I want to know that I can get out of this thing. And they're having this debate on how do you get out? And Jesus like, the question was never, ever to be, how do I get out? The question that God poses was that, how do you get deeper in? How do you form a covenant? How do you, how do you enter into a one flesh union with another human being? Because marriage, it's not a contract. It's a covenant. It's not paperwork. It's not tax forms. It's spiritual. To, to jump on the top of that, because marriage is spiritual, if marriage is spiritual, if we truly believe that when we read the Bible, then we know that our marriage will be spiritually attacked. Again, we, we, we believe that when we read the Bible, that we see some things are going on that cannot be explained in the Bible. We see certain things going on, and it's the explanation for why evil is as evil as it is, and why sin is as, as wicked as it is sometimes, and why we see things in the world, we think, what in the world? Why would people ever do that? It's because there's this thing called evil, and behind what we can see with our own uh, human eyes, there is a realm that is unseen. There's a spiritual realm. So the Bible says it like this. Paul said this in Ephesians. He says, hey, when you're fighting with other people, you're not just fighting against flesh and blood, but you're fighting against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places, in spiritual realms. Like, there's some unseen stuff going on there. So, like, you need to know if marriage is spiritual, then it will be spiritually attacked. And you, you, you have to know this, that, that the, in the realm that we're talking about, there is an onslaught against family. There is an onslaught against fidelity and faithfulness in marriage. Why? Because when you, and you can see this in every culture and every society throughout all of history, that when you break down the original biblical model, God's divine model for what husband and wife and family was going to look like, any society, the further and further they stray from that, the more corrupt that society becomes. Every history, every culture, all, all of it, go look at it, go study it. Every time you see us abandoning, as a matter of fact, one of the studies they've seen recently is this, is that you can tell the, the healthiness of a society based on how they treat women and how they treat children. So when you have a value for women that puts, again, the, this idea of one flesh, because Paul goes on to say, hey, look here, if it's one flesh, God, tell me if you love yourself uh, and you love your wife, you'll love your wife like you love yourself. And you really love yourself. So you need to love your wife a lot. So this was the idea of like, guys, husbands, love your wives like Jesus loved the church. Love her sacrificially. And in return, women, 
honor your husbands the same way you would honor the Lord Jesus. Because this is just the way that it works best. And we, when we live inside of this, what I'll call like a New Testament model for what marriage and family looks like, society thrives. And anytime you abandon that, society corrodes. Because I'm telling you, there's a spiritual element to it. Here, let's, let's keep going. This is where we'll land for the next few minutes. Because marriage is spiritual, are we all there so far? Because it is spiritual, God uses spiritual words to talk about it. God uses spiritual words to define what marriage would look like. So in the book of Hosea, one of these small books in kind of the middle of, of the Bible, it's at the end of the Old Testament. It's one of those ones that if you don't have thumb tabs, it's going to take you 10 minutes to find. In the book of Hosea, chapter 2, God actually talks about marriage, and look at how he describes it. Hosea 2.19 says, I will betroth you to me, everybody say forever. This was God's intent, forever. I will, yes, I will betroth you to me, and then he gets spiritual. He goes, in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Now, how many of you know, like, those are spiritual words, right? Like, those aren't words that, that we usually speak and say um, on our hunting or on our wedding day or in our wedding vows. Those aren't normally words we use in everyday vernacular. They're spiritual words. They're biblical words, church words. And so God uses them, though, and I want you to see why and the power of why. Because if you want happily ever after, if you want a covenant instead of a contract, if you want a spiritual union instead of paperwork, if you want something that can and will last forever, I want you to begin to think of it in these terms. Because God uses five words that, again, are kind of churchy religious words. And he says, if you'll think about it in these terms, I want you to know that God is perfect and holy. And so when he enters into a marriage relationship, it's going to be perfect and it's going to be holy. And he builds the relationship on these five truths. Are you ready? If you're ready, just take notes, write along, follow along. The first one is this. He mentions the idea of righteousness which most of us don't really even know what that is. We know it's a churchy word. We think it has to do with like being a good person and living morally and that kind of a thing. And, and yes, righteousness has the idea and implies the idea of living holy. It does. But when you read the New Testament, when you read what Jesus came to do, Jesus came to make us righteous by taking all the sin on himself. Because of that, when we come to Jesus in faith and ask Jesus for forgiveness, he takes all of his holiness and all of his righteousness and he just passes it right over to us. That's what the Bible teaches. This is why you and I can be forgiven. Like, here's, here's what you need to know. If you're not a spiritual person, you're not a church person, here's what you need to know. Good people don't go to heaven. They don't. Forgiven people go to heaven. Does that make sense? Like, I'm not the best person in the world. You're not the best person in the world. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's purely holy. Nobody falls into those categories. So how then do I get into heaven? I get into heaven because I've trusted in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. I've trusted in him, what he did. And because of that, he transfers righteousness because I came to him and I just simply and humbly asked for it. I'm going to tell you this. The idea of righteousness, not only is just, yeah, holy living, think about it like these terms. How do you become righteous with God? You ask God for forgiveness. And in marriage, how do you think I become righteous with my wife? I ask for forgiveness. Because here's what I know about you. You're going to totally screw this up. Here's what I know about me. I always make mistakes. I say dumb things. 
I, and never, usually never intentionally. Like, I'm not intentionally a bad person. I'm just aloof, okay? And, and I, I've never done anything on purpose. Like, I've never, like, planned and plotted and thought, I'm going to really do this to Tara Lee to hurt her. But I've done dumb things, right? And when I do dumb things, what is it that I need to do then to make us right in right relationship again? I need to come. I need to confess. And I need to ask for forgiveness. And that's how you create a righteous relationship. Do you remember the old school movie? There was, a, there was an old movie back in the day, and it had a famous line in it. And, and the famous line, it was from a movie called Love Story from the 1970s. And, and, and most of us probably don't remember that. Some of you do. There was a line in there, and it, was, it sounded so romantic, but it actually was so dumb. Do you remember the line? It was this. Love means never having to say, that's the stupidest thing. I have ever heard in my life. But we thought it was brilliant. Like, people were like, wow. Because it goes back to that idea of like, you know what? If there's just chemistry and connection and we're just soulmates and all these things that don't exist, if there's just that, then we'll never have to say we're sorry. That's stupid. You are sinful. You do bad things. You do dumb things. You do aloof things. Unintentionally, you hurt people all the time, don't you? Am I the only one? Please, dear Lord, help me. The amens are weak out there today right now. Am I the only one owning my junk? Okay, good. Um, but my, my point is, is that righteousness comes when I actually just humbly throw myself and confess. I throw myself on the altar and I confess. I say, hey, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I, would you please forgive me? Now, now I'm, I'm going to say this just because I, I think it needs to be saying some of you guys out there and some of you ladies out there are really, really good at apologizing. And that's great. And, and, and for you who have pride in your heart, and I love it because every once in a while I'll talk to somebody who's like, hey, I've got pride issues. And I love it because nobody really usually ever confesses that they're prideful. And so, you know, some of us are, though, and we're so prideful. We hate to admit that we're wrong. We hate to admit that we have issues. And we cannot stand the thought of asking somebody else for forgiveness. And I'm telling you, that pride is wickedness buried deep in your heart. And it'll kill you. It will wreck your relationships. It will wreck your future. If you read the Bible, pride is actually the number one thing that pushes you away from God. The Bible actually says that God rejects you because of your pride. It says he rejects the proud but gives grace to the humble. I don't want to get into that. Let's, let's keep moving. If there's pride in your heart that keeps you from apologizing, you need to deal with that. You need to beg God to intervene to help you. and You need to fight tooth and nail to get that pride out of your heart. And the best way to do it is to begin to confess, to begin to celebrate other people, get rid of the pride in your heart. But some of you fall on the other end of the spectrum. Some of you apologize too much and too often, and you're constantly apologizing. And what happens is, is to the person who apologizes all the time, eventually your apologies mean nothing. And, and I remember counseling a couple like this, and when he, he would be quick to apologize, and he would apologize all the time. And finally I told him, I said, hey, look, you need to stop apologizing, because she doesn't care anymore. Like, her heart's beginning to harden, because you keep doing the same dumb stuff over and over and over again, and you keep apologizing. That's not true repentance. So stop apologizing and just change. You hear me? But Righteousness begins when we remove the pride from our heart and we don't just apologize 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 to make it fall on deaf ears but we sincerely seek repentance with that other person the same way we do with our relationship with god so jesus or god says i want to marry you and i want you to see marriage in the idea of righteousness number two is this everybody say justice 
That's, so, that's, that's like the Justice League. There's a superhero involved. There's right and wrong. There's like, so how does this apply to my marriage? It, it's real simple. Like doing the just thing simply means doing the right thing by the other person. But how many times in marriage do we just do the selfish thing? We just do what we wanted to do. We, we did what made us feel good. Well, we did, but we didn't do the right thing. We didn't do the character thing. We talked about that. We talked about being dateable. That where you begin with determining if somebody is dateable or if you are dateable, the first thing you look at is do they have high moral character? Do they have a strength of conviction? Do they have the ability to do what is right simply because it is right regardless of the circumstances? Because that right there, when you live with high moral character, the way the Bible would prescribe, we all live i'm telling you it's easy to do the just thing why because the just thing is the right thing and that's how we move forward in our relationship and so we look at the other human being before we do anything before we make decisions before we go and spend large amounts of money or go do things before we make plans we consider the other person and we put their needs and their desires above our own needs and our own desires and i'm telling you when you find two people that do that it's obnoxiously cute when you have two people who are always elevating the other person above themselves and they're both doing it at the same time, it's, it's, you're like, oh my gosh, go get a room. And so that's the, your ability to do the just thing is the ability to do the right thing by the person that you've entered into this covenant with. Number three is this, everybody say loving kindness. This is the Hebrew word kased. It was basically the idea where in the New Testament we get the idea of grace. But like, have you ever just thought... When it comes to my spouse, what if I just did the kind thing? Like, what if I just, what if I just did the, the gracious thing? Again, it was the idea of grace. Many times when, um, when we're teaching our kids how to be kind to other people, we teach them something called the golden rule, right? We know this, don't we? The golden rule is superseded the Bible. Like, people know the golden rule just because it's the golden rule. And the golden rule is what? Does everybody remember? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? And sometimes we have the selfish rule, which is... You know, do for me what I don't want to do for you. Anyway, um, what, what many people don't know is that um, I was telling you about the, the, the context that Jesus lived in was in a generation behind two famous rabbis. One of the rabbis, his, one of his famous sayings was similar to the golden rule. Like Jesus, when he said that, he was spinning off of what somebody else had already said. But he was making it so much more powerful. So what Halil had said was, whatever he was asked a question what do, how do you define the whole law? If you took the Old Testament, summed it up into one phrase, how would you do it? And Halil's answer was, whatever you don't want other people to do to you, don't do that to them. Which makes total sense, doesn't it? And it's still applicable. Like, think about it. Like, well, I don't want people to punch me in the face. So I won't punch people in the face. You know, and whatever, you, you, you define that, you apply that. There's a thousand ways to illustrate that. But if I don't want somebody to steal from me, I don't steal from other people. And so Jesus is, is coming along and he goes, actually, the way that God would have you live is so much more powerful than that. It's not just don't do to other people what you don't want them to do to you. Actually, I want you to think in the most gracious way. How would you want people to treat you? I want you to go treat them that way. Well, I want people to be kind to me. I want them to be generous to me. I want them to be encouraging to me. I want them to help me out when I'm in trouble. I want them, I want moving buddies because when you move, it's like the most worst thing in the world. And if you don't have a bunch of moving buddies, this is painful, awful. You're mad at life. And so I want moving buddies. And I want I want to like I want to have vacation buddies. And I want to have golfing buddies. I want people that are just cool and kind. And he goes, there you go. Now you define life because life is not just about not doing something. The true life that God would have you to live is the gracious life, which is how would you then treat 
another human being if you were doing it the way you wanted everybody to treat you? So here's the golden question. How do you want your spouse to treat you? And are you doing it for them? It's the loving kindness of God. It's grace. The next one is this. Number four is, it's, it's, it's different, but it's similar. It's, everybody say mercy. I think of mercy a, a little bit differently. Now, the Bible has a broader view of mercy because sometimes when the people um, of Israel sinned, God would just have mercy, meaning he would hold back and wait and give them another chance. And he'd hold back and wait and he'd give them another chance. And I'm telling you what, God was incredibly merciful. Sometimes people look at the Old Testament and think, wow, God was kind of angry. Like God was a bit uptight. God was quick to throw thunderbolts at people. That's not true. As a matter of fact, when you look at how God dealt with people, usually when he dealt with the nation of Israel, he would give them like grace and mercy for like, you know, two, three hundred years. So it wasn't like you made one mistake and then the, the hammer of Thor came down upon your life. That God was incredibly merciful, meaning he would wait, he would be patient, he would hold back. And again, then you throw back in the idea of forgiveness all over again. But here, here's how I want you to think about mercy. There are certain things that your spouse does and they're not even sin, like transgressions. But then you get all upset and uptight about it. Like there are certain things when they break your little unwritten rules and your little unspoken rules of how things should be in the house. And then when things don't go just your way, you flip out like they didn't sin against you. They just didn't do it the way that you wanted it to be done or the way that you think you needed it to be done. But it's not a sin issue. And then they start crossing these lines and start breaking these unwritten rules and start breaking these unseen boundaries that they didn't even know about when they married you. And all of a sudden you flip your lid and go bananas on people. Here, here's, here's the thought. When it comes to mercy and your spouse, here's what I want you to do. In the words of Princess Elsa, let it go. Let it go. You're tripping. The remote doesn't always have to be put in the same. Just you're tripping. The toilet paper doesn't always have to roll this way. I mean, like all the little things. Because when I counsel with people, and I'm telling you, this is the truth eight out of ten times. When I counsel with people, and I'm like, okay, so what started this argument? What are you guys fighting about? What are you guys arguing about? And they almost always say the same thing. We usually just get to fighting about something stupid. I say stupid. I'm sorry. I'll offend you. But that's what people start saying. Why? Because you just weren't merciful about the little things. And, and this is the power. Like, this is the biblical truth you need to grasp. Like, there's a unique difference between grace and mercy. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not. But grace is that loving kindness. Grace is the unearned, undeserved kindness of God towards you. And when you're gracious towards somebody else, it's the unearned, undeserved kindness towards another human being. Grace is when you get something that you did not deserve, Right? Like, God loves you, you didn't deserve it. God forgives you, you didn't deserve it. God blesses you, you didn't deserve it. That's grace. Mercy's a little bit different. Mercy is when I don't get what I do deserve. Right? Mercy is, is when I break God's laws, when I break God's commands, and I ought to be punished. Now, like, as a parent, I do this with my kids sometimes. Because I want to teach them the concept of grace and mercy. And so sometimes when they break one of my rules or one of the house rules or they do something that they know they shouldn't have done, we have a, a teaching moment about it. And I say, now look. Now, not all the time. This is rare. Most of the time, they're, they're getting punished. But sometimes, that whole junk about, like, this hurts you more than it hurts me, that ain't true. And so, um, but mercy is, I, I, so I just straight up teach. Like, okay, now look, here's the deal. You broke this rule. You, you deserve to be punished. Is that true? Yeah. I said, now, do you want to be punished or do you want me to give mercy? They always choose mercy. I just want you to know that. Always. They've never said, I deserve it. Just give it to me. They've never done that before. But you're teaching them the idea that sometimes God 
does not give you what you do deserve. That God, if God punished you for every time you broke one of his commands, you wouldn't be alive today. I wouldn't. So my point is, is that the idea of mercy is just because they did something wrong or they broke one of your little rules or they did something not the... Let it go and be patient. Let it go and be merciful. Sometimes you don't need to bring it up. Sometimes if she burns dinner, if it's not the best meal, just shut up and eat it anyway. Okay? Let it go. Do so, Because in being merciful and being kind, you're going to build a marriage that lasts forever. Last one is this. Everybody say faithfulness. This is the idea, and it's, it's just, it is what it is. It's the idea of fidelity. It's the idea of marital faithfulness, sexual faithfulness, that we are honoring our spouse when we live a life of faithfulness towards them. And I'm telling you, there's just something powerful to it. And, 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 and let me tell you why faithfulness matters to God. It's because God is so faithful to you. It matters to God. When you read the New Testament, read what Jesus wrote, that, that he talked about the idea of faithfulness as being like a key virtue. That when we are faithful with little things, God rewards us with so much more. That Paul said, the only reason I got into ministry and God's done so much in my life is because I was faithful. Like faithfulness is, is, is a key virtue of life. And that God is incredibly faithful to you. And you need to know this. Like, the, the, There's two things I want to say about being faithful. Number one is this. The key to being faithful is setting healthy boundaries. If you want to remain faithful in your marriage, then you can't go do anything you want to go do with whoever you want to go do it with. Like there are certain, and I don't even have a desire to do it, so that's not hard for me. I don't like I don't want to go hang out with you. I don't go hang out with people of the opposite sex. I'm not alone with people of the opposite sex. I, I, I don't even put myself in that environment. Why? Well, number one, I don't even want to. But number two, that's an unhealthy boundary if I cross those lines. Because why would I even put myself in a situation where something could happen? Why would I put myself in a situation where someone could accuse? Why would I put myself in a situation where my wife could feel somewhat insecure and wonder and be curious and be like, well, he's been gone a while. I don't want to do that. I kind of want to go there. So, like, there are healthy boundaries. There are things I don't do, places I don't go, and people I don't hang out with. And, 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 And to be honest with you, it is a simple choice to make because it's a healthy boundary. And because I never put myself in those environments, i got to be honest, the temptation level in that area is incredibly, incredibly low. Well, I'm just never even around it. I'm never even an opportunity to because I decided to put into place healthy boundaries. That's number one. Number two, the key to, t- to keeping faithful is this. Because at some point, you've got to have a strong sense of godly conviction. And that's the bottom line. That if you don't have something in your heart, and I, I think it's just your God connector. That as I connect to God, there's just certain things I won't do. Like, for instance, there's a guy in the Old Testament named Joseph. And he's put in an incredible opportunity to where he can basically shack up with uh, another man's wife. And, and, and the, the scenario is set to where they're alone and she's pretty and she's asking and she's wanting. And he says this and it's so powerful. He does both things that we're talking about. He says something so powerful. He goes, why would I do such great wickedness and sin against God? That's where he begins. There's a sense of conviction within him that says, I'm not going to do that because... That would break the heart of God. I I wouldn't want to do that because that would break the commands of God. I don't want to do that because, well, let's just be honest. When I begin to break the heart of God and I break the commands of God, my life gets broken. So I just just don't even want to go do that. And then he does the other wisest thing he could have done. He just leaves. He runs out of the house. He flees it. Because to set yourself in those environments repeatedly and to still try to be, well, I'm just going to be strong. I'm going to go, but I'm going to be strong. That's dumb. You lack wisdom if you keep doing that. 
So you've got to combine both. You've got to have a strong sense of godly conviction mixed with healthy boundaries. And when you do that, maintaining your faithfulness becomes way, way, way more easy. But God honors faithfulness because God is faithful to you. And when God sees that you can't be faithful in little things, which, by the way, marital faithfulness is not a lot of little thing. It's a big thing to God. But he's like, if you can't be faithful in marriage, how in the world could I trust you with anything else? I've given you something so powerful, so sacred, so holy, something spiritual, spiritual. How, how could you take that so lightly? How could you take that for granted? How could you be so foolish? If you can't be faithful in little things, he'll certainly never give you responsibility over big things. But my God, if you can't be faithful in big things, where do we go from there? Faithfulness is important because God is faithful towards you. Faithfulness is a key virtue, an attribute that we all need in life. So this is how God describes what marriage looks like. He says, I want to marry you, but you need to know marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. I'm not entering into this thing just for my benefit, my gain. I'm entering into it to be a part of a spiritual union so that you can benefit. I'm entering into this this, this covenant idea. I'm entering into a divine idea. Like you need to know like marriage, this was thought up by God. That in Genesis chapter 2, there was a guy alone in a garden. And God looked and said, something right about you. we, we got to fix that. And so he created wife as the perfect counterpart. To say, you two belong together and two now make one. This is a divine idea that long before God gave a rule, before God gave commands, before there was a law, before Jesus ever came, before God put the church and, 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 and put about this whole thing called the church of Jesus, before all of that came along. You know what God came up with? You know what his best idea was? Marriage. It was his first idea after he created everything. What was his first idea? What do you think would make the world be great? Husband, wife, together in a spiritual union. And the further and further we get away from that in our marriage, then we get happy for a while. But when we realize that marriage is a spiritual union, it's a divine idea, it's a covenant that we make with another human being before the eyes of God. And then we start living and operating in all those things with righteousness, justice, with kindness and mercy, with faithfulness. You know what we get? We get happily ever after. Let's pray this morning. So God, I pray that for some of us, we're all in different places. For those who are single out here, God, I pray that they are setting a foundation in their heart and in their mind of where they're going who they're going to date, of how they're going to start off in marriage, of how they will live and practice their marriage out. God, for those of them that are out there that maybe they're new in marriage, maybe they're newlyweds, only a few years in, God, I pray that you would be challenging them to make the proper changes now. God, some of us have been married a long time, and God, for some of us, we need to repent. We actually need to come to you and confess and repent. We need to go to our spouse, and we need to confess and repent. And we need to not just say we're sorry over and over, but God, we need to make some radical changes in how we see that other person and how we treat that other person. What if we treated our spouse as if they were our best friend? What if we treated our spouse the same way we wanted them to treat us? What if we treated our spouse with that incredible amount of grace and mercy, that kindness, not because they did something good, but just because it makes them feel good to be kind to them? God, to put into place the healthy boundaries so that we might be faithful to you and faithful to each other.
God, I know in my heart, I want to be happily ever after with my wife. And I know that for every person that's married in here, God, they want to be happily ever after. Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us. God, help us to build those great marriages that the world looks at and envies. Help us to build those great marriages that the world looks at and is so curious and thinks, what do y'all do? How are you still happy? How did this come about? What is it that's in you? So that, God, we might be a people who becomes the light of the world, like a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, so that we might become the salt of the earth. We give the world a little bit better flavor. Father, we pray, God, that you would help build in this church great, strong, healthy marriages that last forever. Father, we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Can you give the Lord a big hand clap this morning?